Listener supported. WNYC Studios. I'm Rebecca Carroll, and this is Come Through, 15 essential conversations about race in a pivotal year for America. I've been thinking a lot about allyship recently. Not just the commitment to showing up for each other, but how the actual word allyship has been co-opted by white America. Like diversity, intersectionality, and wokeness, allyship has become a buzzword that mostly white people use to signal that they've done the work of learning about the hardships experienced by certain marginalized people. It's a word that's supposed to demonstrate that they're on the side of the arc that's slowly bending toward justice. Now, I am absolutely certain that most white folks who use this word in this way truly believe that they are allies. But witnessing inequality and being a genuine ally are two very different things. For instance, back in 2017, in the days that followed the Women's March, a lot of white liberal feminists in Brooklyn were very eager to tell me that they were my ally. And yet, none of them demonstrated any awareness of how the feminist movement has historically centered and prioritized white women. And the pink pussy hats were just super extra. So here's how I define allyship. If I've got it, as in resources or power, and you don't, then you do now. If someone with moral integrity is in need, and I have whatever it is that they need, then I'm going to share. Whether that's money or time or the use of my platform, to me, allyship has been far more present and meaningful among other people of color, people who, because of our lived experience of being marginalized, have worked to support and lift one another up for decades. This sort of allyship has been at the forefront of my mind ever since the pandemic hit, especially as we've seen this blatant uptick in anti-Asian and anti-Asian-American racism. It's been perpetuated by the president of the United States, who continues to refer to COVID as the Chinese virus, and also by other politicians, including Arkansas Senator Tom Cotton, who recently suggested that Chinese students that come to America shouldn't be allowed to study science. The Black and Asian communities have long been the targets of American racism. They also have a very real history of conflict between them. And at this moment, I want to know, how do we protect others when we're in survival mode ourselves? So I reached out to my friend Jeff Yang. Jeff is a regular contributor to CNN and Quartz. He also hosts the podcast They Call Us Bruce with Phil Yu, who founded the blog Angry Asian Man. On the show... They talk about everything from racism in Hollywood to parenting past stereotypes. Jeff lives in L.A. because his son, Hudson, was a star in the ABC television series Fresh Off the Boat, which just ended its sixth and final season in February. But Jeff and I have known each other for years. Back when he still lived in New York, we'd often meet up for drinks and commiserate over the whiteness of the journalism industry. And as allies, we also frequently pushed each other to get a better and deeper understanding of our very different perspectives as a Black American woman and a Taiwanese American man. Hi, Jeff. 
Hey, Rebecca, how are you? <laughs> I am well. I miss I mean, you. <laughs> I miss you too. I mean, I'm well-ish, you know? I think everything right now is kind of ish, right? I mean, we're deep mm-hmm. in the ish. <laughs> yeah. We, uh, in all the ways that ish exists. Yeah. Um, so what are you doing? Like, what's the day-to-day like for you and your family? Well, you know, uh, I have the two kids and uh, my wife. Actually, oh, hey, that's new. I, I got married right before the COVID. <laughs> I was just going to say, uh, fantastic. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. It was accelerated a little bit because of uh, the circumstances, but it is definitely good to be in shelter with someone who can be a partner, who can share the the pain and challenges mutually and carry the load mutually. Uh, At the same time, of course, it's kind of tough to have a honeymoon or extended honeymoon that involves basically Mm. staring at screens, sitting next to each other and trying not to distract one another on parallel Zoom calls. (laughs) Right, 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 right. Um, But that's life, yeah. And of course, you know, kids, right? So trying to get them to do schoolwork in an environment that is incredibly not conducive to that and to take things seriously, even though things feel remarkably alien and weird and surreal right now is a bit of a challenge. So before we get into talking about your kids and kids and parenting at this time, I want to um, I want to address, you know, the podcast that you co-host with Phil, you know, claims to yeah. offer an unfiltered conversation about what's happening in Asian America. And I know that you're sensitive about being the voice of your community, as I am, uh, as we <laughs> folks of color are always expected to represent entire same featured perceived monolith of people. <laughs> but at the same time, what is happening in Asian America right now? Can you give me a check? Yeah, it's, you know, it's rough. I think that one of the things we're becoming very aware of is that the conditional proximity we have to whiteness, if you will, to acceptance in the context of, I guess, what some might call an assimilated reality gets very rough when the world goes into crisis and when America especially is tuned to facing a threat it perceives to be foreign. And we have not seen something quite as explicitly directed at targeting Asians or at vilifying Asians or at, at essentially racializing crisis as intensely as we have today. So for Asian Americans, and again, I can't speak for all Asian Americans or even all East Asian Americans or all Chinese Americans, But I can say that from a very personal basis, I have encountered these things. I have seen in its lowest and most subtle form, perhaps, the extra social distancing that one gets when one is Asian, especially when one is Asian wearing a mask. I've seen the stares and the sort of edging away that occurs if you happen to actually clear your throat. And I actually had an incident where somebody very explicitly aimed what I can only translate as a kind of racialized, somewhat more than a microaggression, right? Uh, A circumstance in which I was waiting outside of a supermarket online, you know, six feet away from everybody else, as everybody does these days. And somebody shouted a profanity and I looked up, realized they were facing me. And that person pulled down her mask. She was wearing a mask coughed theatrically in my direction, and then ran off to her car. And 
it took me a few beats to look around and realize I was the only Asian on this line. I'd travel outside of my neighborhood, gone to a Trader Joe's up north in a paler country. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. And it was distressing. I, I found myself having to really process the fact that this was no longer an abstract thing, but something that I, I had now seen firsthand. So a couple of things here. The first is that you talked about the adjacency, the white adjacency and the sort of assimilation factor that has happened and has been sort of at maybe the root of what sort of saves, for lack of a better term, Asian Americans from suffering the kind of racism that Black folks have suffered, say, right? That there Mm -hmm. has been that sense of closer to whiteness. But there still was anti-Asian American racism before this. What is the difference between the kind of racism you experienced before the virus and the kind of racism you're experiencing now? It's a really, really interesting question. And I think that part of what has been interesting in some ways, especially in the wake of sharing the incident I had, was to see the layers of reaction from different groups. I think it points in, in a way to how anti-Asian bigotry or anti-Asian racism works relative to other kinds of racism. Mm -hmm. When I first posted this little anecdote about this kind of breathing while Asian moment, I got a fair number of people just sort of supporting and amplifying, which was really great, people from all backgrounds. A lot of Asian Americans who just sort of came clean and said, you know, yeah, something happened to me as well. Uh, I was wondering whether or not to report it. It seemed kind of minor, but yeah, this this feels very familiar. But a significant number of white people responding, oh, Asians are making this up. Uh, You're making this up. You're the new Jesse Smollett. Asians don't get subjected to racism, et cetera, right? And literally calling out that idea, the comparison to Jesse Smollett, which I thought was particularly wrenching. Uh, Yeah. But then, I mean, African-Americans were largely incredibly supportive while at the same time saying, yeah, this is kind of how it is for us all the time. <laughs> right. So, which it fully, fully acknowledge that. Uh, I think that the biggest separation in some ways between how Asian Americans experience racism and how African Americans perhaps in particular, or Black Americans in particular experience it, is that in America, racism towards Black Americans is essentially baked into the infrastructure. It is a part of what made this country what this country is. It is part of the prosperity of this country, right? Extracting value from Black Americans. And it's part of the way that this society works, essentially ensuring that those who are not Black feel satisfied with what they have by kind of pointing to the fact that Black people have less. I mean, that's just uh, that's just how, how our politics has worked on both sides of the aisle in many cases. Mm-hmm. But for Asian Americans... It's very much a sense of a particular kind of othering that feels cyclic, Mm. that feels really tempered around moments of externalized or perceived foreign threat that then translates into Mm. domestic impact. And we've seen that all the way back to the earliest days of Asian immigration to the United States, uh, the Gold Rush era, and the Chinese Exclusion, Exclusion Act, which was predicated on the idea that Chinese coming to America were stealing jobs and threatening our way of life and unassimilable, unhygienic, heathen, etc. But it's repeated at regular cycles virtually every generation 
with war against Asian countries, with competition against Asian economic powers. And finally, in this era, I think, geopolitical competition with China, seen as essentially the only other major superpower that the United States is contending with. And then here we are now with COVID. And so when you were standing in that line, right, like I feel like when I go to a store, and this is obviously a cliched way of describing anti-Black racism, but I anticipate that I will be looked at, that I will be watched, right, when I go into a store, especially maybe an expensive store. But when you were standing in line at Trader Joe's, did you anticipate that you would be looked at differently? That's exactly it. I think that I had the comfort, I had the privilege in some ways, in many ways, of not having to expect that this was going to happen, not having to be on guard for this to happen, that I could just be staring at my phone, playing some dumb game or engaging in memes on Twitter or whatever, and not worry that somebody was going to come over to me and harass me or ask me unpleasant questions or pull me out of the line. That is, I think, a, a certain reality for a, most Asian Americans, I think, in environments that are predominantly white and for what it's worth, I, I live in a predominantly African-American neighborhood right now and usually go to our local supermarket. But that supermarket had incredible lines on that particular day. And mm-hmm. I decided to sort of venture north <laughs> into mm-hmm. a different neighborhood. And ordinarily, I it, it was something I would not have thought anything of. And I think the fact that I could do so, that I could kind of cross boundaries with little concern – it's something I very much take for granted, and I think a lot of Asian Americans take for granted. And so how did that change you? What was your response in the moment, and what is your response to that now? I think that in the moment, as much as I didn't want to, I felt a little bit shocked. I felt a little bit sort of, why me? Or what, mm. what is leading you to call me out, right? And then after I processed it, and I, that's after I, I recognized the racial component or the probable racial component, right? My mm. my first instinctive reaction was literally, I think, the worst one, right? Like, why would you think that I, of all people and of all Asians, right, mm-hmm. was somebody who could possibly be bringing this disease to you, right? Uh, I'm well-dressed. I look professional. For all intents and purposes, seem of a socioeconomic status and immigration status that should insulate me from the kinds of stereotypes or projections that people were making. But the reality is people don't stop to check your propers and your papers when they have a visceral reaction and when they want to actually cast race, as it were, which sounds sort of Harry Potter-esque, casting Mm -hmm. ratioso (laughs) or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Uh, yeah. It also plays into, though, our own kind of internalized notions of what or who is, quote-unquote, bringing this virus here. Even you just saying, when I process the racial component of it, that is deep, man. That's powerful. Like, that means that there is a step for you between something Mm -hmm. happening and getting to the racial component, when for me, it's one and the same. It's the same step. A hundred percent. And I sometimes think of it from the standpoint of how we're wired. I mean, literally and Mm. figuratively in this sense, right? That for people who've actually grown up immersed in a sense in which race has been 
a clear denomination, a clear dimension by which they're measured all the time, right? Where there isn't mm-hmm. a sense of ability to tune that out, to filter out that signal, if you will. That ends up becoming very kind of low-level stuff. That becomes something which is processed instantly by hardware, right? But right. for those of us who are privileged enough to generally not have to think about that all the time, you know, growing up in areas where there is a substantial supportive community of people like ourselves, where we can kind of vanish into the background, or growing up at a socioeconomic strata where we can pretend that these differences don't exist, at least until they do, right? Mm -hmm. Then it's not baked into that sort of hardware level. It's almost like you have to absorb the input. You have to buffer it, right? They're sort of like buffering, buffering, buffering. Right. (laughs) And then what just happened? Something just Mm -hmm. happened. And then you translate it. And once you've converted it into something you can parse, you realize, oh, shit. That was just an incident. So, yeah, yeah. And then what do you feel? I mean, this is Asian-American folks are going to come out of this um, feeling differently than mm-hmm. other non-Asian people. Would you agree to that? I, I do agree to that. But I, I, I think it's because we are already seeing the early signs of how this is going to be used, right? That right. this isn't just simply about visceral and individual reactions from the margins, from people who feel frustrated or hurt, from people who are economically anxious or something. This is becoming an establishment campaign, that this is something that at the very highest level of our government and from people who see this as a a means for advantage, there is an active attempt that's beginning to put a face on this disease, to put a race on this disease. Mm-hmm. And we're going to see this amplify, I think, over the course of the next few months in ways that are very challenging to even predict, except to know that it's going to be bad. I think that uh, the first signs of this were in the way that the very first ad that Trump decided to put out there in support of his own campaign, attacking his presumptive rival, Joe Biden, was literally about how Joe Biden is soft on China. And then mm-hmm. within that ad, he the Trump campaign included a very quick frame of Gary Locke, the first Chinese-American U.S. ambassador to China, standing in front of a PRC flag, a People's Republic of China flag. And that slightly almost subliminal inclusion of a Chinese-American blurring the line between Chinese-Americans and Chinese – I don't think that's a bug. I think it's a feature. I think that Mm. the way that the Trump campaign operates is to find a visible face to convert anger or frustration or disappointment with him, Donald Trump, into a route that people can actually reach out and touch and abuse and harass. It has been black women. It has been obviously Mexicans and other Latinx individuals. And now we're up at bat. And I think that Chinese Americans and those who are often mistaken for Chinese Americans are absolutely being positioned as the new diversion, the new racialized diversion for Trump as he seeks re-election. Yeah, I mean, I think about it as like the racist target du jour, you know, (laughs) of the day, of the moment. And it's probably an odd sensation because, I mean, I think about often— not being the stereotype that I'm targeted 
for, you know, not being that that woman, that angry black woman or the pushy black woman, you know, like, but I, I feel like when you're when you're being looked at, I would imagine for you, you sort of you're hyper vigilant about not being the stereotype you're being targeted for. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, the problem with a lot of these typings, these archetypes slash stereotypes is that they gain a certain amount of cultural currency and then we start inhabiting them, right? We, we believe right, them exactly. or we react as if we are them even though, though we are not, right? Exactly. There are so many yep. different ways in which uh, that's especially true for Asian Americans. A lot of the, the in-jokes we make, for instance, really elevate the stereotypes that we try to push back on. The most dangerous one, at least in this time, I will say, I think is the one I, I sort of cross-reference, the sort of idea of the model minority, that somehow, yep. as Asian Americans, we have done all the right things in this country. We have embraced and exemplified the American dream. And as a result, we deserve a certain kind of special treatment, right? Amongst the fields of brown and black, we are the ones who have stood forward and done the right thing. And uh, and yes, that was a direct hat tip to <laughs> Spike Lee. <laughs> mm-hmm. Hello, Brooklyn. Uh, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> my my feeling there is as much as we want to push back against that stereotype, that archetype, right? There are lots of little ways in which we still nevertheless embrace it as Asian Americans, as certain kinds of Asian Americans. Again, the sort of post-immigrant professional Asian Americans. And we often don't think about it, but if we talk about sort of buffering, right, racial buffering, because that way we don't have to deal with it, right? We can just assume that when we walk into, when we slide into a Trader Joe's or, you know, when we walk into a white neighborhood, that we're not going to be seen as outsiders, as foreigners, as a threats, et cetera, because of that buffer. And for me, I do think that the, the biggest change coming out of that incident was a recognition maybe a, a deeper recognition, a more conscious recognition of, of the buffer and how it operates for me. I also feel that when we talk about the changes to Asian America, I would like to think that we all are going to start examining very carefully the kinds of promises that we have made to ourselves and the kinds of promises that this country has made to us, because I think all of them, much like our proximity to whiteness and to the things that whiteness confers, are conditional And unless we actually start getting organized, unless we actually start building real coalitions, both within and across communities of color, I think that we will soon realize just how conditional those are. That's Jeff Yang coming up, talking to kids about racism in just a minute. I just wanted to take a second to tell you about a super powerful podcast from WMYC Studios. It's called The United States of Anxiety, and it's hosted by my friend and colleague, Kai Wright. The United States of Anxiety seeks to connect the history of America's past and present with questions like, who is the USA for? Who has control over whose body? Who gets to vote? 
and they just released an episode that digs deep into what it means to be an essential worker during COVID-19 and the ways Black communities continue to be disproportionately impacted by the virus. I'll be playing a clip from the episode after the credits, so stick around and don't forget to subscribe to The United States of Anxiety, wherever you get your podcasts. And now, back to Jeff Yang. I also wanted to to talk about this really powerful quote that you gave in the LAist where you said, for Asian American kids, that fear of being labeled as a bringer of disease, as unclean, as somehow dangerous, that's something which I really worry about. We don't know what the impact on our kids will be until they're older. How are you talking with your kids about this moment? It's... A challenge. I think my kids are of an age right now. The, uh, the older one, of course, Hudson, is 16. And in many ways, talking to him is a little bit different because he's been immersed in a lot of this conversation in very different and maybe even very adult ways, right? Mm-hmm. But for my younger son, it's a little bit different, uh, Skylar, because he's 12. He's very curious and inquisitive. And he also has, I think had a lot of immersion into the way that conversation takes place online because that's the cohort, right? Where as much as you want to think otherwise, they are being parented by the internet in so many different ways. And I find myself first and foremost trying to talk to him about the things that he has picked up and heard from other people, some of which is not just misinformation or active disinformation, but is incredibly troubling. Mm. conspiracy theories sometimes catching the edge of YouTube, right? Uh, right. Jokes and really ugly claims about hygiene and uh, diet of Chinese people, etc. It's been harder to talk those things through, in part because it, it makes me feel very unnerved to know that even at the age of what kids might be watching at age 12, this background radiation, these eruptions of the darker kind of Alex Jonesy side of the web Mm-hmm. kind of sliding into their DMs. And I don't know what to think about that, really. Yeah, I mean, I keep thinking as a parent, you know, and Kofi will be 15 in July. I don't want to impress too hard upon him how to experience this. But I don't know. I feel like as parents of color, there is an added level of anxiety about how to shepherd our kids through this pandemic. I mean, I I have had anxiety about shepherding my kids through a lot of things. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't think it gets easier. I think, if anything, it, it gets more complicated that we now really have nothing else but each other in so many different right. ways. Right. It means that I, I feel sometimes like I'm, I'm walking on more eggshells, uh, walking more uh, with a sense of perceived fragility around my kids because, yes, I want them to be resilient. I want to be transparent and honest with them. So it's a burden and a responsibility, but it's one which I wish to God there was a better manual that that I had some sort of template to work from. But I do not. My childhood was, you know, halcyon compared to this. Yeah. Do you did you tell them about the incident at Trader Joe's? Yeah, uh, I told Skylar. I told everybody about it when it happened, and then 
Hudson, of course, he's actually on Twitter, so he saw some of the reactions and responses. So we had conversations about that. Hudson in particular mentioned that while gaming, that he had actually heard some people, you know, use these kinds of terms, use this kind of language. Uh, Scholar said, oh, yeah, you know, someone's passing a, a meme around our school, which made jokes about Chinese people and COVID. And it just it shocked me a little bit how not blasé they were, but how more tactile a lot of this had already been for them than it had been for me. Right, right. Um, speaking of coalitions of people of color and tropes and et cetera, I wanted to revisit uh, a conversation that you and I had, I don't know, I want to say like six years ago now, mm-hmm. when I shared with you a story about a coworker at the time, and she was Asian American. She was kind of racist toward me at work. She openly undermined my work and intelligence and suggested I was a liar and said it was presumptuous to ask for this raise that I had been promised, among other things. And I was like, but Asian Americans can't be racist, right? And you were like, um, actually. (laughs) And you really, like, broke it down for me, which was really, really super important because I just didn't know. Do you remember what you said? Uh, I don't remember the exact words, but I'm I'm sure they're not too different from what I would say today. <laughs> you know, yeah. so much of uh, even what we've just been processing here in this conversation leans into this reality that when when one goes in and seeks the camouflage, right? Uh, when one seeks to earn the stripes uh, of acceptance, a lot of times that means putting on other kinds of racialized uniform, right? You know, th- there are no ways in the kind of racial economy we have in the United States where one group of people of color is allowed to advance without stepping on the backs of other people of color. The system is not constructed in a way to allow that. And for Asian Americans, again, that notion of model minority, that notion of of zero-sum competition ends up getting kind of baked into how many in our community all of us, to a certain extent, are socialized by this culture. And it takes a lot of recognition and a lot of work to get over that and to confront it and to deal with it. And frankly, it's hard work. It's it's work a lot of people don't feel like they have the time to. They're too busy working to get ahead, right? And again, whether or not that devolves to people around them is not necessarily their highest priority. I will say that uh, more than anything, I feel a little conflicted about the best way to move forward in a time like this when there is explicitly a risk that Asian Americans are experiencing that's different from Mm -hmm. that of other people of color, right? Mm -hmm. We want to expect solidarity. We want to expect a sense of common bond, common burden But then I look back and I say, have we done that as Asian Americans when others have faced similar or or different kinds of risk? And while I I do think there are many people uh, in our community who have, in fact, stood up, is it enough? I'm Mm -hmm. not sure that it is. You and um, Phil like to use the tag phrase, don't be racist, which, you know, I mean, it's flipped, but it's also (laughs) like, don't be racist, right? I mean, but what does that mean? I will say that's definitely more of a, a Phil thing than me in part because I, I don't want to uh, steal his tag phrase in some ways. It was angry Asian man before it was they call us Bruce. But I certainly endorse the idea that, you know, just 
don't be racist, right? Uh, at the same time, it isn't as simple as that in many cases. Racism is not about what individual people do. Racism is about what a society is, right? So when mm-hmm. we say don't be racist, we're really saying don't act in a fashion that is so frequently encouraged, that is so frequently socialized into us by a racist society, right? Right. The reality is all that's going to do is change and act a moment. All that's going to do is prevent the amplification of something that we already know is widespread. It's like banning people from a country when the virus is already in your society population. Uh, right. That is, right. That is yeah. the fact. We're, we're not going to change things unless we change we, we won't flatten the, the curve unless we actually do a broad-based lockdown and sheltering in place uh, against racism. <laughs> what do you think is the essential conversation we should all be having right now? If I could have everybody talk to you, Rebecca. <laughs> <laughs> You're very kind. <laughs> Jeff, thank you. I miss you so much. Uh, <laughs> Hopefully, we'll be able to visit one day again. I was going to say that. Yeah, I absolutely cannot wait for the the shadow to lift a little bit and for us to be able to visit one another physically again once more. That's Jeff Yang. He's the co-host of the podcast They Call Us Bruce. You can follow him on Twitter at Original Spin. Christina DeJosa and Joanna Solitaroff produced the show with editing by Anna Holmes and Jenny Lawton. Our technical director is Joe Plourd, and the music is by Isaac Jones. Special thanks to Jennifer Sanchez. I'm Rebecca Carroll. You can follow me at Rebel19 for all things come through. And if you like the show, please rate and review us. And now, as promised, here's one of my favorite clips from the United States of Anxiety, a conversation between producer Verilyn Williams and her father. My dad is one of these people that are still going to work because he's an essential worker. What kind of work does he do? He works at FedEx. I I basically run the store, and I am more into the graphics section. But because of the coronavirus, all the companies around us, they're all closed now. So we don't do any of that right as we speak. Shipping is what we're doing now. He takes a lot of pride in being able to do this in this moment where everyone is trying to connect in this way. We're doing a great service to the public because a lot of people come in, their mom is in another state, they're worried that they don't have enough supplies of food, masks, you know, they come and we can get it there the next day. So that's one great service. We'd still need things delivered, and so that is an essential service. It's true, but here's the thing. My dad is black, he's 62 years old, and he's diabetic. So these are all factors that means that if he were to get COVID-19, he would probably not do too well with it. And he's in the Bronx. Yes. I mean, that's one of the places where we see there's so much both infection and death in New York City. When you leave your house, like, how do you prepare for being outside? I leave my house around... Seven, and I walk to the train station, which is about a 10-minute walk, and there's hardly anybody in the streets. Everywhere is quiet. There's nobody there. But then when you go down to the subway, then there's a whole bunch of people, and we all have to jump on the same car and go to work. 
and we're all sitting there looking at each other. We're trying to stay away from each other, but it's almost impossible. And so you would think that that means that he will be taking every precaution. But until the recent mandate for people to be wearing masks, my dad wasn't one of the people with masks on. No, I wasn't. Even though I tell you every day no, I don't. to wear a mask. Mm-mm. But I wasn't wearing a mask. Why? Because I didn't, I didn't think I needed it. I, in my mind, I believe that the coronavirus is something that if you get it, if your immune system is in perfect condition, you can overcome it. Every day I drink a glass or two of the ginger. I drink my apple cider vinegar. I take my immune medication. I take vitamin C. I take my ginseng. I mean, I'm right on top of it. That's why I'm not worried, you know? I'm not worried at all. <laughs> 